You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Where are the aisles? The projectionist husband has smicha. No, actually, yes, because we're here today not only with a rabbi, well, <laughs> the two rabbis who have smicha, but we also have Chavas with us today. Chava Kolkowski is here with us today because... Tonight, we're going to discuss something that she was quite aware of, that they were a, uh, a team that uh, was really a jewel and a, uh, a treasure in terms of the history of filmmaking. Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, uh, who produced uh, some of the greatest films of all time, definitely some of the greatest English films of all time, but some would say actually some of the greatest films of all time, eclipsing the like Vertigo and uh, Citizen Kane. Uh, the Archers themselves... Uh, Powell and Pressburger, we're going to talk about some movies that I just came across recently and, and Chava is a, is a great fan of. So Chava, you know, we're going to talk about three films tonight, um, uh, I think. And, and again, if you want to throw in any of the other ones, like 49th Parallel or any of the other films. But um, we're going to talk about three films tonight from Powell and Pressburger. It's Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, born Imre Yosef, <laughs> Imre Yosef Pressburger in Michlosh. Uh, Part of, part of what we want to talk about is the fact, of course, the sensibility that Pressburger bring, uh to uh, what he did. He was he was much more than just what a lot of people think. Chava that uh, Powell was the director and Pressburger was the screenwriter, and that was how their collaboration worked. But I think in most of their, I don't know if all of them, but most of their great films, uh, it actually says. Uh, um, uh, written, produced, and directed by Michael Powell and um, Emmerich Pressburger. So they did not want people to think that one did more than the other. Um, I know that Pressburger was definitely uh, involved in film editing, uh, not just incredible dialogue and incredible uh, screenplays. And so I know they were all really working, a, re- a tremendous thing that they even could be so collaborative. I mean, before we talk about the films, the films we want to talk about tonight are three of the greatest British films, and maybe as we say, chronologically, we'll start with The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, that was uh, 1943. Uh, then, I believe the one next in line would be The Red Shoes, right? And followed by, I think it was 1949, was The Black Narcissus. So these three films um, uh, from wildly different sources. And yet, they all three, I think, share uh, a great beauty of, uh, they were all technicolor, and, and even though this was something, Yitzchak, right, that was uh, developed out here in the United States, I think the Brits showed in these three films, especially uh, the, the, tr- the beautiful use of technical. We talked about it, by the way, in Blight Spirit, how beautiful that film was as well. So the Brits definitely had managed that technical aspect of, of, of the films looking beautiful, but they also have a theme and an idea, and they are, in, in many ways, uh, films you could always go back to, and I think really relish. Uh, you mentioned Citizen Kane. I love Citizen Kane. I think every time you see it, uh, it's able to give you some new hop of what Orson Welles was trying, was trying to do. But I, I, I think the difference between Welles and, and, and Powell and Pressburger is, Welles, I think, Kane was like, look what I can do. And, and, and there's heights I can even go from there. And you're, you're hard-pressed to find later Wells films that are the superior of Citizen Kane, as if you see he actually went further and developed as a filmmaker and beyond. Again, I know there are people that will tell you that um, um, 
you know, the uh, the Magnificent Ampersons is is an incredible film. Although what we have is a chopped up version of it, um, and people will talk about the Lady from Shanghai. I, I love um, uh, Touch of Evil, but I can't tell you that it's a better film than Citizen Kane. I think it's it's a great movie to watch, and it's, it has stuff that Citizen Kane doesn't. And there's certain camera techniques that are used there, like that great tracking shot in the beginning that you don't have in 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 Citizen Kane. But I don't think that it, that Wells ever really, you know, grew up to the point that boy did he produce such a tremendous body of work. Uh, whereas I think uh, when it comes to what I've discovered with Powell and Pressburger is, I mean, there's there's those films that they've made. There's so many of them that there are just a, a tremendous over of, of 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 films. I think the three that we've picked are that each one I think can make a stake for being the greatest of their films. Chava, listen, you know, I, I, I'm supposed chivalry is not dead. Why don't you start and tell us about why you think The Red Shoes is such a great film? So first of all, I would say about Paul and Pressburger in general, that they did have a trajectory of growth that I think, I have not seen Colonel Blimp, um, but I understand it's, you know, great too. But you see how between the red shoes and black narcissus they grow uh in terms of story in terms of framing in terms of atmosphere in terms of cinematography um both are incredible films and amazing films and and you know definitely made their mark on film history but you see that there's a growth there um well, why okay. don't we? Why don't you talk about what you think are the, the central themes? And really, because a lot of people who listen to our program, they don't, they haven't seen these movies before. They don't oh. know. So tell us a little bit about an outline of about the Red Shoes. And okay. So basically, the Red Shoes is about uh, this gentleman who is a ballet. He's basically Nijinsky or um, Balanchine. He's the head of a ballet company and there's a um young he hires at the same time a young composer to be sort of the new rehearsal uh dude you know conductor for the um orchestra and a young ballerina to be in the core which is like the backup dancers basically of the ballet and um he's very controlling right. <clears throat> he's and, and very and uh and that's Bo- that's boris boris is the head of the company right yeah boris lermontov is his name and he's uh he's a very big perfectionist he wants the music he wants the sets he wants the costumes he wants the dancing all of it to be perfect and all of it to be his vision he's a little bit um like Orson walls i guess in that way mm-hmm so he's very exacting and he decides he's going to do a new ballet with this young conductor who's going to compose the music and the new young ballerina from the core is going to be the main ballerina for this new uh, ballet it's called the red shoes and that's put and she's played by Moira Shearer and and Boris is played by Anton Walbrook who I'm going to speak about him later because he is a very central role in the life and death of Colonel Blimp so Moira Shearer is the is the ballerina and um and 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 she's eager she's talented um 
right? right. So I'm not going to give anything away, but I'm no. just going to say. By the way, I, I want to tell you that me and your husband spoil everything. I mean, oh, you do. Okay, <laughs> yeah, we spoil it. Um, I'm just going to say, go see this movie. There's a love triangle, and it's not between the people who you think it's going to be, because one of the people in the love triangle is not even a person. It's art. Mm. Um. So it's about um, the dichotomy between um, a domestic life and a life of fulfillment in your art, you know, domestic fulfillment and a life of artistic fulfillment. It's about um, obsession. It's a, I'm talking artistic. I'm talking obsession with people. I'm talking about obsession with be just basic obsession and it's about um gosh <laughs> right so basically I, I think what happens I here know. i think what happens here is that is that boris is, is is such a perfectionist but he's also sort of scientific in his understanding and he realizes that what um what victoria is going through is in a way this, as you say, this triangle between the love that she's that that's developing within her and the composer, and her dedication to her craft, and only one can win, right? Because, right? Um, so at the beginning of the film, there's a crucial scene where um, Lermontov is invited to. He's before he meets Vicky, who's the ballerina played by Mara Scherer. And Lermontov is at a party hosted by Vicky's aunt, who's a big ballet patron. So he has to go, right? He's got to go and get the money for things that he needs to do. So there's a rumor that they're going to be, quote unquote, treated to a ballet exhibition. But then they say, no, just kidding. We're going to just have piano playing. And he, he sees this beautiful young woman at the bar. And they both order the same drink. And he says, oh, I understand we're supposed to have be quote unquote treated to an exhibition, but I'm so glad we're going to be spared that horror. And Vicky says, I am that horror. <laughs> and he just feels like he, you know, he's put his foot in his mouth. So he asks her, why are, you know, why do you want to dance? Why do you want to be a dancer? And she doesn't miss a beat. She says, why do you want to live? And he says, you know, he thinks for a minute and he says, I don't know why. I can't put a reason on why, but I have to. And she says, that's my answer too. And it is um, such a profound moment about, and it is truly about people who are artists. Both of them are, you know, artists and they're both obsessed with their craft and they can't live without it. And there's no reason, rhyme or reason for it. It's just like, so which is re it's really a film about the obsession that Powell and Pressburger had because right that they also were artists completely dedicated to their craft so totally and completely Oh yeah and I would say it's definitely self reflective you know and it's and, making a statement but it's interesting that they relate it in a dichotomy to domestic fulfillment sure. because there's this woman who wants this relationship who wants to have a a home with a family and and live that life but she's also a deeply devoted and artistic and talented ballerina and she cannot have both yeah it's interesting because you know powell uh michael powell had actually was was having sort of a romantic affair with deborah carr 
And one of the things Deborah Carr, and she, of course, is in both of the films that I want to talk about, and you can talk, we'll talk about it together, Black Narcissus and the, and the Wife uh, and Death of Colonel Blimp. And uh, Deborah Carr actually told Powell that if she does get the Hollywood contract, their relationship is over. Yeah, there's, as right. long as, as a, so, you know, Powell was very familiar with this within his own life, where right. he, where, and, and he knew Deborah Carr's immense talent. Um, interesting that he didn't cast Carr in this role. Maybe uh, you needed someone. You needed, with, a you, need, you needed a dancer, right? Carr, of no, course. By the way, super tall. Uh, no? uh, well, you know, well, you know, of course, Deborah Carr was in a film where she had to sing, where she didn't really sing. Marnie Nixon supplies her voice in um, The King and I. And I, right, right. But she was not a singer. She was just an, an, an incredibly. Uh, beautiful graceful human being uh, and who can, who, actress. Who, i think she's amazing she is a, yeah, a great actress I, we've talked about her in the innocence which i think is uh and maybe in, again you you could tell me about black narcissus is that it's ostensibly based on a hans christian anderson a story but my my sense is from what i'm hearing is that in 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 pressburger's hands this turned into a totally different story right uh, so the the ballet there's actually a full ballet inside the movie, which is stunning, incredible. The score is amazing. The dancing is amazing. The costumes are amazing. Watch it. So the ballet is based on the Hans Christian Andersen tale, which is about a girl who wishes for a pair of red shoes, but when she puts them on, she dances and the red shoes do not stop dancing. So that's really the the the, the ultimate metaphor for an artist who once they get into that can't stop right so exactly so it's sort of like the art imitating life imitating art um echo throughout the movie but it's so artfully done like it sounds so hokey for me to just say that that and so cliche but it's so beautifully crafted by Paul and Pressburger that you don't notice that life imitating art imitating life theme you just are like swept up in the story and the and then when it's over, you're like, oh, you know, I, I, I would say part of it is from what I've seen from the other two films is that both of them are, long, again, Black Narcissus and, 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 and Blimp is close to three hours long. I mean, you're talking about both of these are these are very long films. Um, and yet you can actually find yourself swept up in it because, first of all, I think of the beauty of the photography, which is uh, right. which is incredible. Like I said, incredible work. And also um, the very uh, i think uh, you know there's a lot of hollywood films some of them you uh, and i have talked about where you can see the score was sort of like imposed and hammered into it and okay. therefore you know pressburger was very involved in the music he was himself somewhat of a composer and he also knew how to put the music in in a way that seamlessly was able to take you from one uh, situation to the other um and Again, it, it's not surprising that you should have this play within a play. Um, and it's not done, again, in a way that I think really surpasses like, a lot of stuff in Hollywood. When you would see like, you know, you're in, you're in some sort of nightclub and all of a sudden, like you're in one of these 30s films, right? It's like where it's a nightclub and all of a sudden, like the, the, um, the, the curtain goes up and it's like a soundstage, right? You know, like this is supposed to be like a nightclub somewhere in New York. And like when the, when the curtains go up, it looks like the most magnificent uh, theater in the world, like with ceilings that go up to 75 feet or something like that. So again, 
part of what I think they're able to do is is retain the illusion much better than their Hollywood counterparts, uh, Powell and Pressburger. Um, you know, the, the Black Narcissus, a film which I know you love as well, Chavich, we're going to talk about, was supposedly, you know, you unless you're told in advance, you believe you are watching uh, the Himalayans, you know, the backdrops, the matte paintings that they use, uh, and, and, and the, the brilliance of also there's, with I can tell you in the Colonel Blimp, there's use of animation that is seamlessly connected. It's not like, oh, this is real hokey animation. Even the type of stuff you sometimes saw in Hitchcock, where you could tell that this was, you know, just a, a camera shtick. They, I mean, Powell and Pressburger are, 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 are the equal, in my mind, based on what I've seen, they're the equal in, in many ways to Wells, Hitchcock, and Ford in terms of their use of the camera and, 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 and really um, entrenching you into this world and, 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 and with and seamlessly going in from scene to scene, whether it's a fade out or some other sort of means of indicating uh, the passage of time or other things, they really, they really had this craft down pat. Uh, sure. and and I think and it's an immersive experience, like you said, you know, you're you really feel a part of it when you're watching it. Um, there's a scene in the red shoes where uh, Vicky is going up to a chalet on top of a hill in Monaco. It's all she does is walk up the stairs. It, it's an endless set of stairs and she's just walking up the stairs. But somehow the way they have shot this scene. You feel like you're there and it doesn't seem like that long. You know what I mean? It's not like one of these establishing shots where you're like, okay, we get it. You are there with her. You feel her emotion. And it's all because of how it's shot. I, I would say another thing that I, I, I found about it, we talk about cinema verite. In, in many films, including those that Yitzhak and I have talked about, you almost can sense that, oh, this character is coming in because he's going to be important later. He might be the murderer. Oh, right. You, you, you almost get a sense of the canned aspect of the dialogue. Oh, this is here because it's going to lead to the next step. And you're sort of, you're, you sort of can see the strings. What I discovered in both of the films that I saw, which was Black Narcissus and um, The Wife and Death of Colonel Blimp, you, it, it's almost like, well, this is the way life is. The, the characters actually don't come back. It's not like, oh, do you remember what he said there? Oh, yeah, remember that, because that's going to be important, like, you know, a little bit later. No, it's not. <laughs> but it, what, what you have is just sort of like a life scene, almost like Cassavetes did um, in his in his career, where he just wanted to film what life was really about. You know, right. so and you get that sense there. And at least I didn't see Red Shoes yet, but you're, you know, I know that it's on my list now. But I think in the uh, these other two films, there are characters. You know, the Gene Simmons character, for example, in um, in uh, in Black Narcissus, that was Gene Simmons' first film. And I know a lot of people are going to say, "Oh, it was so terrible." Identity politics—they blackened her up to play an Indian girl. Of course, you know, Gene Simmons, is. she's, of course, uh, right. one of the most beautiful and, and important actresses of Hollywood in the 1950s. Um, you know, you know, and and uh, we talked about her when you know, we talked about Elmer Gantry, where she plays Susan Sharon Falconer. But, you know, she's, you know, throughout the 50s, she is, you know, uh, she's in film noir, she's in musicals. Um, 
And she's a character along with Sabu, who you don't even see, you know, in the last third of the movie in Black Narcissus. You know, you would think, oh, you know what's going to happen here. Like, you know, so Pressburger really, in a way, uh, really uh, upends your your expectations. It sounds like, though, Red Shoes is a little more um, uh, exactly crafted. But but what I got from these other two films is, okay, you know, like, like for example, you might remember in a Black Narcissus, like one of the nuns, you know, who says, oh, I've, I, I'm planting flowers now. I'm not planting, I'm not planting um, vegetables anymore. It's, got, it's getting to me. I, you don't even see what happens there after that, right? You know, she don't, <laughs> okay, okay. So she has this thing, like, like what happens to that sister? Who knows? Okay. Um, I'm, so, so I think that's really part of the charm and, and, and the capability. It's like a shaggy story. And it's almost, I think, to my mind, Chava, it's almost like some of the, the later prestige British um, stuff that you found on television later uh, in, in the last 20 or 30 years, where you'd have just this, you know, whether it was a prime suspect or something like that, where you almost have an episodic aspect of the story. And you're just waiting in, as you're waiting in, in the theater for the next installment to insert itself, you know. Yeah. You know, I agree. And again, there's other films where, you know, like even Kane, which we talked about before, you know, has this framing device, you know, that you're waiting for. It is very episodic. It's luck you can chime in and agree on this because you do go to each, you go, you know, for each narrator. You know, each narrator has a little different story and a different version of the same thing, sort of a Rashomon type of situation filmed from a different perspective. And that way, again, Kane is really incredible. But um, you are waiting for, okay, okay, we're coming to the end now, right? We're going to come to his death, right? We're going to come to this, like we know where we're going. Um, You don't get that sense, I think, from, um, definitely not from Colonel Blimp, but you definitely, you don't get that sense uh, from Pressburger and Powell. And that's really, really the, the, the greatness, I think, of any film is that you know that you're paying the, whatever the money is, spending the time. You know that you're turning the lights off and you're trying to escape after a, a difficult day. But while you're there, you actually, as you said, you believe you're there, you believe you're part of it. That's really the testament to you know, the greatness you know, of a filmmaker. Uh, in, in ways that, again, people will point to Hitchcock and say, well, he's so, you know, he, he points to himself, like by having, making sure there's going to be one scene that, that nobody else could have pulled off, right? Whether it's, uh, you know, the perspective, like say, you know, let's say in Marnie, where if you remember Tippy Hedren is, you know, you, you can see, you know, as she's trying to steal something and, you know, he does like a split screen and you can see what's going on, uh, you know, and, and what's happening and, and from the perspective of two characters and he puts them both together. Um, the point though is Hitch will do that like once or twice in the film and ooh, isn't that incredible? But to actually create that type of brilliance <clears throat> throughout the film is almost impossible. I think Powell and Pressburger were able to seem, like like we said, seamlessly, and also to do all this, like a, a lot of uh, cinematic brilliance throughout the film. It's not just oh that one shot; it's it's almost like a collage of things that I think ends up uh, causing you really after you watch the movie to say, "Boy, that was something!" Right? So I think yeah. that's uh, right. It's it's an impression that you feel afterwards, like you're so swept up in, in the experience of these immersive films. And then afterwards, you're like, wait, whoa, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you almost are like, you have to kind of go back to it and be like, oh, okay. Um, because it's, 
it's just an experience. I, um, I watched, I'll, I'll confess to you that I watched Black Narcissus on my phone. I downloaded it from Criterion Rest in Peace. Um, while I was sick, I was recuperating and uh, I, I downloaded it and watched it. I had never seen it before. And it's so a you, tragedy that so, I saw it on such a small screen. But I oh, yes. Still... No, no, no. You definitely have to see it in, um, you have to see it, you have to see it in a full, in a full way. And um... yeah, I, I was still so caught up in it. I, I didn't eat, you know, I didn't move. I was just there for those two plus hours um well let's talk about well let's let's talk about it because we'll talk about again we're going a little backwards and we'll talk about black narcissus um many people again uh scorsese felt this was an erratic film uh and 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 let me talk a little bit about it and you can chime in if you want um anytime you want um basically the the the, again it is based on a um on a on a a novel by rumor godden who was who actually was raised, I think, by missionaries or others uh, in that part of the world, in the Himalayan area in India, um, and it was it's 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 it, the, the film. You know, you you can't take it out of its time period. Uh, it, this is post World War II. Uh, this is the period where um, England's power, uh, its imperial power, is obviously waned. Uh, they have, in a way, survived and won the war. But the same way the the Germans uh, and the J- Japanese had to pay a price of submissiveness, there was another type of submissiveness and price that was being paid by the British Empire, which was that it was cracking apart. And that, of course, started even uh, as, as we saw that in World War One. But definitely by World War II, their hold on these areas that were ravaged, worn, torn, that the tanks and other stuff that were were threatening to pass by, England could not uh, tech could not afford uh they didn't have the funds there was so much to do in terms of rebuilding infrastructure uh on the british isles themselves that these places including eric's of course were not going to be under you know as part of uh, the great united kingdom and you can't help but think about that because this is about uh, uh nuns that are sent uh, i forgot what exactly the saint mary whatever they are uh they are being sent to a former uh, pleasure palace. There's a, there's a, um, there is a, uh, a, an Indian, um, uh, sheik or, uh, Shaw. I'm not sure exactly what the title is. They call him the general, uh, that he, uh, has decided, uh, to give this over to this group of nuns. Now the, the film, uh, indicates that there's already been a number of monks who tried to go to this place. Now the film unabashedly shows you, if you remember, I don't know if you could, you probably couldn't see this on your iPhone. Uh, yeah. But they show you these murals that were in this place, because this place was a historical place of the indigenous people of that area in the Himalayas, where this is where the concubines were. In other words, the nuns were going into a place that had been used for centuries as a pleasure palace for uh, these rulers, for these women to come there and service them. And that's why they had so many rooms and so many places. This is where they were held, like Ahasuerus' palace. Now, it's in clear disrepair. It's nothing that looks, it doesn't look like Kublai Khan. It doesn't look like the Taj Mahal. But they do, they still have these murals up. 
And the beginning of the film, Deborah Carr, is, who plays this young uh, sister, is being given the job. And she goes with this crack team, the Mother Superior might remember, picks out uh, these various women, these four or five nuns that are going to go with her. Each one has their special superpower that they're going to be able to somehow... <laughs> To somehow make it make it happen it's interesting again that the film sort of foreshadows what's going to happen at the end because there's what about sister ruth what about sister ruth right you know I, she's like the one with the most jewish name right what about sister ruth what about her <laughs> right uh, she might not be one of us yeah but you know what she needs it she has to go i was talking to your husband about this earlier today she has to go over there be machasik in other words by being machasik other people she'll be machasik herself right by going there she might do something oh but but she's ill meaning emotionally ill but no this might change her and this might do something for her and of course the nuns are supposed to be when they go there they're not only supposed to set up a uh uh, you know, sort of like a, a nunnery. <laughs> what they're supposed to do is have a hospital. They're supposed to teach, right? Unlike the monks who are sort of like going there to contemplate and they uh, they, they failed. Uh, the sisters are there in order to set up a place to actually bring Christ to these savages, to show them who Jesus was, to, to, to save them, to, to give them uh, the, 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 the social sciences, to teach them math, to teach them sociology, to teach them not such a way about the world. And, um, and of course, we've seen this uh, in, in other sorts of films where these nuns, including films like Lily of the Field and other films where these nuns are, uh, are you know, are, are, are dedicated to make the life better. But here in Black Narcissus, every single step that they take is very difficult. And it's clear that anybody who shows up, the film makes clear, they've been, they've been paid by the general, by the, the head honcho to show up there, right? They don't really, they're not, even the girls that come there that learn about sewing and, and they learn their lessons and the little boy, who's a great the little boy actor who's somehow able, he's the one who knows English. But even they are only really there because they're, they're playing a role. They're not really being transformed they're being paid by uh you know the 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 warlord over there who basically runs everything uh so the idea of the nuns actually making a difference is is questioned right away also uh you know besides sister ruth you know there's also a another character who sort of represents is he the devil or is he actually the most human and he's sort of like the the one who writes them the letter. That's Mr. Dean, played by David Farrar, I don't, yeah, who is who is this fellow? Because it's it seems to be uh, an area, although it's up in the mountains, it seems to be a place that gets very hot uh, in the summer. He is often seen in shorts and with the, his bare shirt off, and he represents for the nuns not only a whiff of the sophistication of what England was about, but also the sensuality of, of a real life with a man. And, uh, you know, the film deals with that quite a bit, how, uh, you know, the, even, even the, the mother, the superior sister, Deborah Carr, who plays this young head of the, of the, of this nunnery, that she also somehow, whenever he shows up, there's this friction and, and, you know, and sexual tension that you can tell is between them because she gets upset and she makes assumptions right away. And what also occurs is that she starts dreaming or daydreaming about the era, the period before she became a, a nun. 
and, and what you realize is, and I don't know if you hopped this Chaba when you were watching it, that it was almost like a, a banal circumstances for her calling. In other words, we, we have a sense, and Yitzchak, you can uh, chime in on this, you know, we have a sense that, that when people do become dedicated to Christ, so they do become dedicated to their lives, to become a nun, which means to basically to swear off, um, you know, all uh, uh, connection to, 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 to living with a man and to become br- the brides of Christ, so to were, that this occurs because some amazing uh, clarif- moment of clarification comes. There's some sort of r- uh, higher spiritual call that you receive. And, and what, what Powell and Pressburger show in these flashbacks is that it was just a typical uh, idea of a jilted girl who somehow didn't, the guy that she thought she was going to marry, it didn't work out, right? It's, you know, she comes from such a, a if you remember, she comes from such a middle class type of upbringing. It's not like, oh, some terrible story occurred. There was something where she saw the hand of God and she had to realize something uh, that she now needs to change her life. Uh, the, the the film really questions why people become uh, and become dedicated to God in this way, and of course the the idea is that they you know you're told in the beginning that this is going to be a struggle that they probably won't win, and what is it that they won't win? <laughs> okay, what they won't win is not just that they won't convert these people and get them to love Christ. But what's going to happen is they are they themselves will not become better. In fact, what happens throughout in the film is not only does she start thinking of her past, the other nuns, instead of working, you know, officiously to to produce vegetables and plants, they start uh, just feeling that they just want to be into beauty, into the uh, into the into the ephemeral parts of the world that we know aren't really that important. And of course, Sister Ruth, who finds it's very difficult uh, to 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 work in the in, in the ambulatory in the place where they're I guess where they're doing operations and they're doing the type of doctoring, and she's she's confronted by the reality of blood, which is which is so shocking to her. You know, she uh, who they say hasn't taken her, t- her final vows. It's clear that she, as the film progresses, uh, is the most attracted. Uh, even in a way that doesn't at all uh, is not is not actually brought back by 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 the, the Mr. Dean character. Uh, she fantasizes in her mind that Mr. Dean is somehow her lover, and that she is somehow going to give herself to him. And again, spoiler alert: what happens is is that one of the you know the the, the great moments of the film is where you know you can see the way they sh- they shoot it that she receives a secret package uh and it's hers and somehow you know the uh, i guess as as the moment i, I forgot the drama that, it, that that actually precedes it but one of the great moments is is that you know she uh as as as, as Deborah Carr as the as the superior sister hears something going on in her room um she opens the door and I think that's the moment that we talked about before we started recording, Chava, where she sees um, Sister Ruth, uh, who's, you know, who's played by um, a Kathleen Byron. She sees her out of the habit, right? And up until this time, you only see their faces scrunched into this triangle. And now you see her with her hair out. She, and, and I think what's so erotic, what Scorsese was talking about, was you know, she's got her lipstick on. Right. And um, and 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 you know that this means that she is ready 
that she has abandoned God. She's abandoned what what that life had been, and you know she she makes her way to to give herself to to Dean, and when when he rejects her, this causes her to go into a almost a maddening uh, part. Of, of our life and and in her mind she thinks the reason why dean rejects her is because dean is has erotic love tension with the deborah carr character and therefore she sees um that sister and i think uh, deborah carr's role is she's called sister cloda <laughs> i don't know exactly where that comes from but sister cloda becomes her rival in her mind and as you say it's 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 as terrifying as anything that it's almost as any horror movie when you think about these those two and i think the uh climactic scene between the two uh is very similar to hitchcock's vertigo the last couple of scenes in vertigo and i you know without spoiling everything but i think it is a uh i think it is very much a reflection on uh, on 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 the Brits' ability to control the empire and how you know that they were they lost control, but also about the purpose of a monastic life, and whether it really makes sense to dedicate yourself so totally to the next world, and the inability to really um, distance yourself from the sensuality which is inherent in our nature. Not exactly a great Jewish theme, but I think that's what Pressburger and Powell was about. Is that what you felt as well, Chava? Do you think, am I hitting it on the nail as far as the, as far as you're, you're concerned? Or you got well, I, I was just about to say that it's the funny thing, the funny connection between Red Shoes and Black Narcissus is that they're both about conflict within women who want relationships over some other sort of calling be it art or religion um and by religion i mean the catholic idea of celibacy and being a nun um that sort of like pull um and that sort of that tension that a woman has oh i mean it's still today even even with um the fact that women often find fulfillment in careers and domestic life, there's still, you have to find a balance and it's not always so cut and dried or so easy. Um, are we going nuts? Do we need to be filmed in like crazy light that's going to influence Stanley Kubrick later? I don't know, <laughs> but it's, it's still that tension. And I think that they capture that really well in both films. Yeah. I, I look, the tension in, in, in Black Narcissus is a lot more um you know horror like it's almost a horror oh film. yeah it is a horror it, I'm saying, it's, it it's, turns it, into a horror film for right, sure right, it, right right and you can tell as things start to change there i, I love a lot you know sabu comes in and says oh i like mr jesus christ you know and you know because they, they and they talk about the idea of jesus being a human being um and and, and there's of course a, a a christmas scene as well christmas mass um where Mr. Dean is drunk, you know, and of course they, they consider that sacrilegious. And of course this was, you know, in America, that would be normal, right? That's what Christmas right. was about, right? <laughs> and they consider the fact that he's so drunk. And so, so, so I think it is much more pointed than just, you know, the, the inability to dedicate yourself to one thing if you want to live a life. I think, I think it is very much, and I guess, you know, Pressburger being a Jew and a very unreligious Jew, 
Um, you know, he was buried, I mentioned this to Yitzchak earlier, he was buried in a, in a, in a very hallowed Christian church with a, with a Mogan David, you know, uh, there. He married a non-Jew. His, his grandchildren are, are the McDonald's. Um, but, you know, Pressburger, who, uh, you know, escaped Nazi Germany, a Hungarian who escaped Nazi Germany, uh, born in Miklos. Uh, yeah, so you're talking about a uh, you know uh, he went to school in Tomashov. I mean, this was a a person who you know his I don't know what Imre Yosef means, but you know he definitely was a person who who was very aware of his Judaism. He didn't deny the fact that he was a Jew, but I think that uh, his Judaism was not in any way a religious one. And I think his writing, if he again, I didn't. You said you read the Rumor Golden book. Uh, d- did you feel that the years ago a million years ago i was right. 17 i'm just turned 45 today so <laughs> happy birthday happy birthday it's look i think you have to get the chavas and red shoes for a birthday that would be <laughs> don't worry i already had my red shoes uh moment <laughs> <laughs> but my point is is that uh you know i i think that uh I, I don't know what Pressburger did, but knowing what he did with the other things that he was able to, and we, we've talked about the difficulty of dealing with um, a primary uh, a primary source and trying to develop it for a film, that it, it wasn't easy to do that because sometimes the, it was you were weighed down by the characters in the book and what people were expecting. I don't know if Rumors, Godin's book was so well known, but my guess is that Pressburger did a lot of his own changing and uh especially with the camera work in, indicating things that weren't necessarily in the original novel and it's a it's a slim volume and there's not as much characterization you know my the my first impression of the movie after i saw it having read the book first as i was like well they really developed these characters quite a bit you know which i which i think which is really part of what pressburger was a natural writer he wrote he did write some novels afterwards some of them were very well reviewed uh, extremely talented person um and uh you know he was very self-conscious about the way he looked but he was a person who i think was a very again he he let powell's name come first maybe that was better for for the english um but I, from what I've read up and from what I, I deduce, this was a 50-50 partnership for sure. And um, I think that's, you know, that's something that you can see. You know, again, Black Narcissus, I think, is a, is, is, is a film that you could enjoy, as you say, on many levels. Uh, it doesn't necessarily, up, it's not an uplifting film. It's not, no. a, film, it's not a film that you come out with, uh, with any sort of sense of, great possibility you actually have a sense of of england and humanity and and maybe really like you say they gave up you actually they don't win and 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 you throw in the towel and you realize that maybe your conceptions of what it means to be a spiritual or good human being are incorrect and are flawed and maybe you need to to look at things differently and you and, and you have to look in the mirror and say, am I really greater than these other people? Do I have a right to, to especially coming after World War II, where in America and other places, we had the sense that we won and we are now going to preach to the world what their, what democracy is and, and what the world should look like. I think Black Narcissus, in a way, is really a pushback against that type of haughtiness. Uh, whether it's about religion or about the empire or any sort of, uh, and to recognize that there are forces that are stronger than those. So let's go to the, the, the first film, the film you haven't seen yet, but which I recommend. And I think, to, I actually appreciated more than Black Narcissus. Despite the fact that Black Narcissus was, was you know, mesmerizing in certain ways, 
I really think the life and death of Colonel Blimp, which is, I have to tell you, there's nobody called Colonel Blimp in the film, but there is a character, the, the main character, whose name is uh, Major Wynn Candy, uh, Clive Candy, uh, who, uh, this is really his story, his story from a young man to an old man. And, you know, the, uh, uh, look, you know, characters who age uh, during films, a lot of times, you know, you, you know, oh, come on, you know, take off the fright wig, you know what I'm saying? Uh, Powell and Pressburger do a great job in aging uh, that character. Um, You know, the, the, the main character uh, who was really the star of the film, Roger Livesey, who plays Clive, um, they did a great job in makeup, and you really believe this is the man who's gotten older. You know, a lot of times you, you'll have a person, they don't do such a great job, by the way, with Anton um, Walbrook, uh, who plays, uh, he's, the, he's, I guess, the, um, the heavy in the red shoes. He plays, uh, and I'm going to talk about this in a second, he plays, he's sort of the second star in this film. His aging is not as convincing, but the aging of, 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 of Candy you know, and, and you see him in, it's, it's, the film is told in a flashback, a very, but not one of these flashbacks like you have in the television where everyone goes, ooh, like, you know, and it goes back or you hear a word being repeated over and over again. And then they, they actually do it through um, water, indicating like, I guess, a sense of life and connection. And it starts, uh, again, the flashback begins in a Turkish bath. Uh, where it seems like David Lowe's character, Colonel Blimp, would always hold forth. So let, let, let me give people a little bit of a, of a background. Um, Colonel Blimp was, was basically like Mutt and Jeff, like the Cotton Jammer kids, like Peanuts, or, you know, or the Boone, uh, you know, whatever, you know, insert whatever your favorite comic strip is. So he was sort of like Dennis the Menace. This was a, usually just a one, instead of a series uh, of, of of like a comic strip where it went from w- one uh, block to the other and then you'd have the payoff in the final one, you would basically have a blimp talking in some sort of non sequitur or some ridiculous way. This fat guy, uh, a colonel representing, you know, English propriety, what the English world was with uh, this walrus mustache saying something ridiculous or inane. And it was very funny to see this. Oh, here's this fat guy who represents the people that are running the country. And he's a, a, a full-time person in the military. And look how little he knows. Isn't this funny? And aren't there many politicians and, and, and people in uh, the War Department who think just like him? And that was really why the character was funny. That was Colonel Blimp. Um, but what Pressburger and, and Powell decided to do was was to basically dissect the English mentality and to actually take it back from the period where the film starts, which is in the present day, which was then was 1942, and the film was released in 1943, and take it back to 1902, to take it back to the period of the Boer War. Many people thought, by the way, that the character, the Clive Candy character, was very similar to, to Winston Churchill who uh, also fought in the Boer War. Now, when the, the film uh, takes you in this flashback, and it's very interesting how it gets there, because what you see is, is that the film starts in present-day England, 1943, and what we call the National Guard, which then was called the Home Front, uh, the, the, the home front 
uh, soldiers. Uh, they were the ones that were supposed to be ready if there would be an invasion. In other words, unlike the, the soldiers who were actually going out to Normandy, wherever it was, uh, to fight in those various areas, the RAF, these were the ones who, I guess, couldn't make it as actual uh, uh, actual military men going out, but would be uh, waiting for invasion from the island itself, more than just the police force. It's what we would call like the National Guard. So it's a National Guard exercise where they're pretending that there's an invasion and there's been an all-out war and invasion of England. And in this, uh, uh, you know, this this 15 minutes <laughs> of, a, of an intro, you can see that the the main this 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 lieutenant or some sort of character is very excited because he is going to be able to um, hop, and and instead of the war game starting at midnight, he's going to go six hours earlier and capture the head of the national guard who happens to be this old guy, Candy, who's this old brigadier general who's now been put out to sort of like organize uh, this National Guard. And he captures him in a Turkish bath, similar to where Colonel Blimp would hold forth. And he looks for the, for, for the British audiences that watch this film. The man has a big walrus mustache, just like Colonel Blimp. But instead of Colonel Blimp, who's this, you know, fat, you know, sort of silly fellow, what we see is that Candy has a lot of life to him. And he actually, although the, 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 the young lieutenant who captures him is uh, 40 or 50 years his junior, <laughs> Blimp, you know, uh, Candy fights him. Candy smacks him and, 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 and hits him into the water. And it's from there that flashback ensues where they go back to the time of the Boer War. And here's really the incredible thing about this film. And it doesn't only trace the life of a soldier and a soldier's life versus a diplomat's life. What the film does is, is it, and and think about what was going on here. It was written by a refugee, someone who hated the Nazis, someone who was driven out of his work in Germany, Pressburger. And the film takes you back and sets up a situation where Candy goes to Berlin. He goes to Berlin in order to find some um, journalist who was writing screeds against atrocities that the Brits were supposedly doing in South Africa, that the Brits against the Boers, the the sort of Germanic people in South Africa, as you know, uh, the Afrikaners, that the Brits who were fighting there were uh, were actually slaughtering women and children. That's what the Germans were writing about the British war in, in, in South Africa. He goes to Germany to try to find this scoundrel. And um, when he does find him, um, he, he finds him through, uh, there's a young woman who, 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 who is said that Candy would be the perfect person. So he goes to Berlin to find this person. He finds this woman played by Deborah Carr uh, in this role. And once he finds her, uh, she leads him to where this scoundrel is and he calls him out and he when he realizes this scoundrel is part of the the german army and that the you know the, the, all his friends who are part of this part of this dragoon that are part of this group of hessian soldiers that are all whatever they are that they're all together that they're all defending him he insults them all and he says how could you ever protect this person he's a liar he's a scoundrel i know him so what it turns out is is that he ends up 
insulting a whole slew of, of, of German officers. And of course, in Germany, when you insult them, they, you have to get, uh, uh, they, they expect satisfaction. And that satisfaction is in the form of a duel. And of course, it isn't what, like Hamilton, <laughs> where they dueled with pistols, but they deal with swords. And now it turns out that Pressburger and Powell, uh, uh, you know, build attention to the scene where Candy, although you know he, he you know, the, the Deborah Carr character has sort of gotten him into trouble, he now has to get involved in a duel with the German officer that they've selected to fight him. And this is um, the character that's played. Uh, Theo Kretschmar, that's the one who's played by Anton Walbrook. He doesn't speak any English, and Candy doesn't speak German, and they square off in a gymnasium. Uh, and again, just the details of that scene is worth watching the movie. Watching the way they, they prepare for the duel. Watching the way they have to read the, the handbook for how the duel is done. To see the Germans, um, how obsessed they are with the details of it, um, the, 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 the officials, and also the fact that despite their differences, how close Germany and England were, that even though they didn't speak the same language, there was a love in Germany for the English language, and the Germans and the English, despite the fact, remember, this movie was made when, when Germans were our, the, the enemy that needed to be put down and destroyed, and they were bombing uh, London and killing children. The film talks about the affinity between Germany and England. And it does this by putting these two soldiers in a duel together, and you don't even see the duel. You watch them, and you see the swords close up, and then Powell lifts the camera. He takes it outside with animation where it's snowing, and he takes you back to the to the carriage where Deborah Carr is sitting with uh, with uh, Candy's friend, and then what you see is you see an ambulance uh, carriage leaving the gymnasium, and you don't know who has won the duel, and it turns out that both of them have wounded each other, and they needed to uh, convalesce in a uh, in a in, in, in a sanitarium together. Both of them have been wounded. Candy, uh, and this is, they explain why he needs to grow a mustache. His face was cut with the saber. Uh, the other one also uh, had to have 12 stitches in his head. In other words, nobody won. And yet, at that uh, sanitarium, they end up becoming friends. They play bridge together. And they form a tremendous bond with each other. They, they teach each other a little bit of each other's language. And the film becomes the story of the love, even though Deborah Carr is in this film in three different roles. She plays the original semi-love interest of Candy, who ends up with a flip of what you don't expect. She ends up becoming engaged and marrying the German. Because she, you know, she she has gone to Germany, somewhat of like a suffragette or something like that. That's the way she's dressed, and she's gone to Germany to sort of like, you know, uh, to to teach people English because she can translate from German to English. And she ends up teaching Theo English, and she ends up falling in love with him. And and Candy says, "Oh, of course, young man, I'm so happy about it. You know, the Brits, you know, you stiff upper lip. He's really happy about it." 
But it turns out that, um, as you can imagine, that you know she represents this idea of love that that he is is looking for, and he only realizes when he returns back to England after he's convalesced, and that he is with he was actually in love with her. And he tries to take her sister out. They go to a play. And just like you said before, in the Red Shoes, there's a number of plays and concerts within this film that are staged so perfectly. Uh, In the second stage of the film, um, and and it's it's interesting how we're able to go from the Boer War to to 20 years later, approximately, to World War I. And they do this by a means that, again, how, how do you show time slipping away now Yitzchok you've seen it a thousand times calendar right the calendar the calendar moves off right the clock moves around and around again without spoiling the film they came up with a way to indicate life was moving on and how did they do this well it turns out that just like every good Englishman uh, Candy is a hunter and he's brought back from South Africa various animal heads. And he's, his, his aunt, who it seems like he doesn't have any parents, his aunt has a special room in his den where all of these will line the wall. And she looks at the wall and says, oh, we've got a big wall here. So in order to indicate time has passed, what they do is you can see the animal heads advancing. And, you can, and underneath it, there's a little plaque where it was, right? What place in Tanzania this happened? And then there's like a a lion and then a tiger and an elephant, right? And you can see as time goes on and each one is with a blast to indicate the years that have passed. And of course, this wasn't a way to just say, oh, isn't hunting great? But it's about the mentality of the Brits that of course they were big game hunters and, you know, and and that's what this was about. I, I don't know if Pressburger and Powell were against hunting, but this was such a novel way to indicate the passage of the years. And it's done in a way that's funny. You actually appreciate that. Which animal is coming in next? Where did, where did he get this animal? And that, of course, takes you into World War II, World War I, I'm sorry. And that's the second part of the film where you get some new characters and you see that uh, he is actually in France and... Uh, it's right before the armistice. Uh, there's a great scene where the, he interacts with Americans. I've talked with Yitzhak before about other British films where they have Americans. And the Americans are so over the top. There's even a black character who is like a typical black character in, the, in an American film who drives uh, the general. Because at this point, he isn't just a, a, a young colonel. He's now become a, a, a general in World War I. And he's leading the troops. And the film does a great job of capturing um, uh, what it's like in the trenches in World War I and how you couldn't tell where the enemy was. And, 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 and there's also indicators of uh, the, the very vicious uh, types of chemical warfare and other things. And, and the film starts to speak about how the reason why the Brits and the American coalition won the war is because they kept to being noble, and that the Germans somehow gave up their nobility, that the Germans, in order to win World War I, which was the, the Great War, uh, engaged in terrible tactics that we talk about now with Putin and others, you know, unleashing the worst type of weaponry, um, 
doing whatever it took, engaging in terrible espionage, uh, the types of things that uh, 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 zeroing in on women and children. And this was something that the Brits and, and Candy himself feels that he is immune to. Now, remember, he's lost uh, you know, the woman that he loved. And Deborah Carden then plays a young nurse uh, who, came from, who comes from some, a bored young nurse who comes from some rich family in England who Candy notices as he's trying to find a meal. And the only place he can find a meal on the front is at some a French nunnery, <laughs> shades of black narcissus. But this one has about, this one, this is a place where the nuns are running a real hospital, a field hospital and others for, uh, for the wounded there in France. And it's over there that he notices that at a table, there's the spitting image of the woman that he loved 20 years ago. And the film, without being coy about it, uh, comes up with a way to explain how somehow he's able to catch her, lure her, and somehow manage to marry her, this woman that's 20 years younger than him, but somehow reminds him because she's a spitting image of that woman that he loved. But, but what's more important to him, seemingly, is his friendship, because one of the people that's captured by the British is Theo. And at this point, Theo is a, is a German captive, and, and, and I thought one of the greatest scenes was that they're listening to a Mendelssohn concert, a, a British POW camp full of, Brit, of German officers that were captured in World War, at World War I, who were put in this camp where, they, where the Brits, instead of, you know, was, instead of the Brits punishing them, for being uh, for 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 what they did in the war, the Brits basically gave them these comfortable barracks, and they had concerts consistently. And, you know, and the Germans would be sitting there on the lawn, listening to listening to to Mendelssohn and other German composers, and enjoying themselves, but hating the fact that they lost the war. And when Candy tries to uh, to greet and find Theo, Theo won't speak to him. He doesn't want anything to do with him. He's a loser. And, 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 and he somehow gets him to come to a, uh, a, a, a dinner where all the illustrious members of British society are there in Candy's house. Um, and they all say, come on, man, you know, you, you know, we're going to help you. Uh, you're not our enemy anymore. The armistice was signed. Oh, there's no reason to be upset that you lost. Now you'll turn to other things. You know, this sort of condescending, not understanding the, 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 the damage of what war does, this sort of this British silliness that you think that the person that you defeated, you're now going to help and we need trade. And of course, we want to build you up. You've lost the war. But of course, Germany has to become a power. So we should trade with you, etc. This is what he, the, the, what's being said at the table. And we know, of course, this was the most debit. This was really the worst things <laughs> that could be said. Uh, and this, of course, was some of the the condescension and the dismissiveness, and that led to, of course, as we know, the rise of Hitler, because this is where what Hitler banked on, because the Germans were so proud, and 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 Theo embodies this as much as he remembers the love and the good times that he had with this person. He can't stand to be in his presence because, uh, and, and, and he mocks him. Now the next well, part, yeah, is, and and this was made during World War II. They didn't, they didn't know that after World War II it worked out, though. You know, Germany right. and Japan, especially. That's right. We did embrace them. We did, you know. Right, it was, but, but, but but it came it because in World War One it was it was uh, I didn't I it was it was 
really just words. You know, they were they were really. I I never even heard anything along the lines of what they're presenting there that they that they would even suggest that it was it was all revenge against Germany. You know, after World War One, there were many people in the British upper class, and of course, you can see the the film. Um, uh, the, the remains of the day and some other films that actually explore this uh, later British films that there was, you know, the film that um, Anthony Hopkins was in uh, was about the remains of the day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, and I think in that film, Anthony Hopkins plays a, a butler to a, um, uh, to someone who wants to appease the Germans and thought we need to repair and and they spoke that way to the Germans. Of course, the Germans hated what happened, and they felt that uh, they tried to do this soul searching, and they had to go rediscover the Aryan uh, essence and 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 get rid of the bourgeois and all these other things that that made them weak, and that, that you know that brought the Reich you know into existence. But you know, part of the film, the film's very honest. That you know you can't be good friends with someone after you you've defeated them, and and you have to recognize that. And of course, the Brits. You know, we're oblivious. Um, the film then moves uh, as he's married to his new wife. They do something really, again, instead of a bunch of uh, animals uh, being shot and being placed on the wall, they do it by uh, a scrapbook. You know, scrapbook of, of places that the general and his wife have gone, pictures being put in the scrapbook. And then, uh, you know, suddenly the scrapbook stops, which is an indicator, again, that, you know, that that this beautiful woman that he married somehow we don't know they don't talk about how she died but she's now she's been out of the picture for a while and the next thing you have is some people say it's one of the greatest scenes that Powell and Pressburger ever put on Theo has abandoned Germany his wife Deborah Carr the first has died and his children have become Nazis and it's clear from his monologue that they have become part of the Hitler youth movement and they don't want to have anything to do with him because he resigned his commission. He doesn't want to be involved in war. He doesn't like the way his country is becoming. So he's a pariah and he uh, decides to emigrate to England. And of course the, the, the British, uh, uh, the three person council that's deciding whether they're going to give him his immigration papers have to hear from him. And of course, what he says at first is about how, uh, you know, he is, he, he doesn't, he doesn't like the Nazis is he has no connection to them. He wants to come to a place that, that, that believes in freedom. And they say to him, well, you know, if you're a Nazi spy, that's exactly what you would say. You have to understand you might be telling the truth, but if you're not telling the truth, we can't let you in. Um, and he says something which I think is very deep, and I think Pressburger understood this. What he said was, I have not lied. Nothing that I said was a lie, but I haven't told the truth. And then he becomes personal, and he talks about his wife, and he talks about, and it's, a, it's, it's about a four-and-a-half-minute monologue where he, where he spills his guts. He doesn't break down. He has that German reserve, and he speaks about why he has come. And it isn't just your typical story that, you know, I hate what the Germans are about and I want to come to a, a, a he, he, he creates that, that personal aspect. And I just think this chiluk, many times we don't lie, but we don't tell the truth. We don't say what we're really about. And he talks about 
his friend. He talks about his friendship. He talks about what it was like. He talks about how he saw the sanitarium again. And he talks about how he has changed, how life has changed him, how as an older person, he's, he's lost so much of that, of what, what his youth meant, of how innocent the world was then. And then it rings true. And um, he still, by the end of the film, still doesn't have permission. He's still called an enemy alien. He still has to check in with a curfew. But that scene, you know, is, many people believe, is really, you know, a, a very a wonderful scene. It's interesting that, that the war office, when this film came out, wanted to severely edit the film because they felt it was too sympathetic to the Germans. Uh, and, and, and it is incredible because it's not a jingoistic film at all. It really wants to tell you about how close Germany and England were, how in many ways they have the same foibles, in many ways, many of the things that, 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 you know, if the shoe was on the other foot, who knows what would have happened? And that's what the film really plays with when it talks about this friendship between them. Deborah Kerr has a third role where she plays the driver of Candy because Candy uh, has, as I said, becomes this head of the, of the National Guard and he needs a driver. The driver, once again, is Deborah Kerr, who he has chosen out of a group of 700. So clearly, she is still looks just like his old love, although he's not a dirty old man, doesn't make any moves on her, of course. But just the fact that she's around indicates how a friendship is many ways. We talk about a triangle. There's this triangle between these two best friends and this woman and this idea of beauty, this idea of grace, this idea of of the specialness of, of, of the capacity, the potential of human beings to be better, which is sort of like this unifying force uh, that, that somehow keeps them together. Um, the, the, the film then works its way backwards. Then you realize about the training exercise uh, that started uh, this whole film. Uh, and the message on one level is we've got to fight dirty against the Germans that the Germans have, that the world has changed. The world is, it's, 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 it's foolish to believe, just like the nuns uh, in, in Black Narcissus, and maybe everyone can fool themselves to, to sort of like commit themselves to a, a way of life that doesn't jive with reality. But the world has changed to a point that if we don't match our enemies' tactics, they will win. And if they will win, as the film points out, the difference can last for a thousand years because what Nazism and, and the Reich represented wasn't just a, a different type of regime, but a regime that, of course, would, would eliminate, would bring humanity into a whole different, uh, would destroy you know, what we thought humanity was. So we needed the means of being trickier. We needed the means of, as we know, we ended up using like the atomic bomb and other things in order to destroy this evil, and hopefully we can still retain what made ourselves ourselves. All of this, again, is packed into this sort of like story that, that, that is able to sort of grab you, and you think about it. Um, and again, without, without the name Blimp being mentioned at all, and you were thinking about it, the man doesn't die in the film. It, it is his life, but in a way, Blimp has died, because the idea of the uh, of the ridiculous soldier, the soldier who doesn't understand, the one who is too committed to 
what used to be the values of England, the values of 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 of, of, of chivalry. That Colonel Blimp has died, and it's important to to put him to rest, because you know, uh, Powell and Pressburger know that this new world, we're going to have to uh, alter our our our, our sensibilities. We're going to have to alter our sense of morality and we're going to have to know how to be able to use the fist and sometimes the gas and the bomb and still be able to retain our values. And it isn't just going to be about being able to bring back trinkets from the war and other things. It's about something more crucial and more vital. And I think that's part of where, you know, what the film means by the death of, of Blimp. So, I think we've got three really, you know, again, if, if, if this conversation, I think, could lead people to, to discover these fellows um, and, and recognize that way before, you know, the Coen brothers uh, worked in tandem to create their, you know, masterpieces and misses and semi-masterpieces, there was this work of, 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 of cooperation that I think, you know, they're called the archers. That's what they called themselves. And I think I think I'm I'm not going out on a limb by saying, and quoting the Nitziv here, Nitziv when he talks about the pasuk, uh, as, as Yaakov says that he took Shem, if you remember Yitzchak, bechar biyubakashti, he took it with his sword and with the arrows. The Nitziv says, as we know, the pasuk says that the Targum says and, and Chazal tell us that the sword is what we call tzluse, what we call our davening, our appeals. And the kashti is actually buuse, is, 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 is our heartfelt appeal. The tzib says sometimes what you have to do to start things off is the usual grunge work of the shmonesre, of the davening, where it's basically your typical words that we've been saying for years been talking about them and saying them and it's been useful and there's been a lot of uh, history in it that's the <clears throat> that's the cherev that's the tzuse that's the normal davening but that's only supposed to cut away the bad thoughts that's supposed to get you in the state of mind when you're able now to shoot the arrow the sword is what the infantrymen go out there and somehow clear the field and when they've cleared the field then the archers could take aim and are able to shoot very far. They could reach incredible heights and maybe even penetrate the marshal, the king, whoever it is that's running the enemies, the enemy's armies. But you need to have the chera first. Similarly, when we appeal to God, as Siv says, we can somehow appeal and even ask for miraculous things. But we need to do it on the heels and on top of the tzuseh. I think the archers, which is what, which is what they called themselves, they were shooting for things beyond. Now, of course, it wasn't necessarily what we would applaud as being the ultimate spiritual things, but they were looking for almost miraculous changes. Yes, they did the normal stuff that movies do, the cherev, but they saw themselves as the archers. They saw themselves as the ones who could who could use their longbows to to send messages different. And they do that, again, by upending your expectations, by presenting, oh, this is going to be a comedy, is it? This is going to be 
like a story of nuns working. Oh, this is going to be a story about uh, how you put on a play. Oh, it's based on Hans Christian Andersen. No, these are the archers. <laughs> They're going to start with the the, the, the the basic structure and framework. But then as the films develop, you see that what they have in mind is something more far-reaching. And I think that might be the reason why Pressburger and Powell called themselves the archers. Whether they hit the target all the time or not, their their reach is definitely immense. And I think we're able to really, and that's the reason why the, all of the films are a product of their time. I think they are, they have been able to, te- to stand the test of time. And like Citizen Kane and other films, I think they've been able to really uh, reveal themselves as the great masterpieces, even for our time that we could perhaps take some important lessons from. So that's about it, my friends. You guys can uh, watch your step on the way out. We'll catch you next time. Thanks a lot, Chava. Be well. Bye-bye. Yeah, it's <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.